Our life together is so precious Together we have grown We have grown. It's October 1980. John Lennon has just turned 40 and after taking a five-year break from the music industry to bring up his young son, Sean, he's back with a brand new single, fittingly titled Just Like Starting Over. In November, the former Beatle releases his comeback album, Double Fantasy, a collaboration with his wife Yoko Ono. But just three weeks later... John Lennon of the Beatles is dead. He was shot late this evening in front of his apartment building in New York City. Apparently, he was killed almost immediately. The man who shot John Lennon walked up to the musician as he was leaving his limousine and then fired at him point blank at least five times. John Lennon's murder on December the 8th, 1980, was an event that shocked the world and sparked a public outpouring of grief. Much like the assassination of JFK almost two decades earlier, most people who lived through it can remember the moment when they heard the news. The nation was stunned and there was this reaction of just being dumbfounded. Absolutely senseless. It was ridiculous. It, uh, you know, you always look for the reason why and there is no reason there. Everyone was was totally shell-shocked, really. I don't remember ever feeling that kind of desolation before. 40 years on, Lennon remains a pop culture icon, revered for his music, his political activism and his sheer outspokenness. I'm Sarah Stacey. Over the next hour, I'll be exploring John Lennon's legacy, the impact of his untimely death and what he means to us today. This is Lennon, 40 years on. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. The saying goes, life begins at 40, and for John Lennon in 1980, that certainly seemed to be the case. He was inspired, re-energised, and making plans for his future. I think that after a decade in which John was searching for his new meaning, you know, he had left the Beatles, and of course he gives us the litany of what he doesn't believe in. I don't believe in Buddha, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in Kennedy, I don't believe in Zimmerman. I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. Jude Sutherland Kessler is the author of the nine-volume historical narrative, The John Lennon Series. After that whole litany, he's searching for who me is. He's very hopeful. He's in the studio, very good friends with Dennis Ferrante, who was his recording engineer. And when Dennis was alive, he used to talk about how happy John was recording Double Fantasy and getting ready to release that and how excited he was to return to music. And in December of 1980, he was looking forward to the years to come. And 
growing old with Yoko and moving into tomorrow. So, you know, it was a it was a very positive time in his life. John and Yoko recorded Double Fantasy with producer Jack Douglas at the Hit Factory in New York City from August to October 1980. It was released on November the 17th. Many of John's new songs had been written during a trip to Bermuda that summer, which reignited his creativity. Suddenly I got the songs, you know, just suddenly, like had, if you pardon the expression, diarrhea of creativity. So then I couldn't wait to get back and start then. It just, I suddenly had all this material. After not really trying, but not, not trying either for five years, I'd been so locked in the, the, the home environment and completely switched my way of thinking that I, it, I didn't really think about music at all. My guitar was sort of hung up on, behind the bed, literally. And I did, don't think I took it down in five years. If you can take a step back and try to take the emotion out of it and just look at the album, as a collection of songs, I, th- I think it's a very good collection of songs. Stephen Kennedy, director of the Dublin Beatles Festival. I think there's some of his best, like songs like Woman, uh, Watching the Wheels Go Round, Just Like Starting Over, Beautiful Boy, all those Lennon songs, they're, they're quality songs. So from a creative point of view, I think John Lennon was definitely on good form. And it would indicate that when he was killed, He was still very capable of writing great songs. Such was John's enthusiasm for what he was creating that he was even considering touring for the first time in years. One World, One People was going to be the name of the tour. And they had been talking about the songs that they would play. He was kicking around the idea of doing I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You. Ken Womack is Professor of English and Popular Music at Monmouth University in New Jersey. He's also the author of John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. John had begun to sketch out um, some kind of stage craft for the show, maybe some uh, different kinds of pyrotechnics. They would have needed to rehearse, you know, being on stage was something he was not always comfortable with. And he was becoming acutely aware from some of the members of the band that, you know, touring was not what it was when he left the stage, uh, more or less in 1966 with the Beatles, you know. Concerts are no longer by 1980 half an hour long. They're two hours, you know, and if you're in The Who or you're Bruce Springsteen, they're like three or four hours. So um, he was sort of getting his mind wrapped around the idea that you wouldn't just be out there and gone, you know, in the blink of an eye. After almost a decade of living in America, he was also determined to get back to England for a visit and planned to spend time with his relatives in Liverpool. He'd been talking to his half-sister, Julia Baird, Um, about, you know, maybe coming back on the Queen Mary. He had told his Aunt Mimi. I I think that was a very solid bet that he would have returned to England. New York had been John and Yoko's home since 1971. They lived first in Greenwich Village before moving into the Dakota apartment building on Central Park West in 1973. Many famous people have lived there. Lauren Bacall lived there until she died, which was a few years ago. Um, Rex Reed still lives there. Leonard Bernstein lived there. Judy Garland lived there. Um, so it's, it's had a bit of an illustrious history with famous residents. Susan Ryan, owner and tour guide of Fab Four NYC Walking Tours. 
1973, uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono move into apartment number 72 on the seventh floor overlooking Central Park. New Yorkers were very proud to have John live here. We loved the fact that he wanted to live in our city and be one of us. And I remember when I found out that he lived here, I thought that was the best thing ever, that, that one of the Beatles wanted to live in my town. And, you know, he was beloved. He was beloved in the neighborhood. Uh, I mean, he patronized the local stores and restaurants. He walked around the area. Uh, people saw him. He would say hello. They would say hello. I think John saw himself as a New Yorker after having a life of being in the public eye and, and just every single little thing he did being in the papers. I think moving to New York was a real refreshing thing for him because he could kind of just be himself. Alison Boron is a co-host of the Beatles podcast, Because the Beatles. She's now based in Los Angeles, but used to live in New York. That's the thing about New Yorkers. And the thing I miss now living in Los Angeles is New Yorkers really don't care. Um, That's, you know, you can be a massive celebrity and just walk down the street and you might get, you know, stopped a couple of times. But New Yorkers in general are just like, yeah, yeah, get out of my way. I got to get to whatever. I got to get on the train. So he would compare it with his days in London in particular, where he couldn't go anywhere, or L.A., where people are always looking for celebrities. New York uh, is a place where a person, to his mind, and, and to a certain extent, people believe this today, where a person who's of some fame can disappear. He talked about, you know, if you live during the days of the Greeks and Romans, you would want to be in Rome because Rome was the happening place, the central place. And because he was growing up and living in the era that he lived in, he wanted to be in New York. And he felt that he could walk the streets there, not be accosted. People recognized him, but by and large, they left him alone. I think that between now and when John was living here in New York, especially the Upper West Side where he lived, I mean, it was it was a very independent sort of place. Erica White is also a co-host of Because the Beatles and a longtime resident of New York. I mean, if you think about like old, you know, Woody Allen movies from the 70s or, um, you know, some of the the writings back in, in, you know, if you think about like people living in apartments in the Upper West Side, it was, it was very much of a kind of quirky individual place. You know, they didn't have chain stores. They didn't have all of that. Um, but you know, it's still, it's still a very nice place to live. I still love living in New York. You know, it's still very much to me. I feel like John's memory and uh, John's essence is still there to some, some extent. New York reminded him very much of Liverpool. Seaside city, commercial city, wharf city, bustling city. I think it was his larger Liverpool in the United States. You've obviously got the likes of Strawberry Fields uh, and you've got the, the Dakota building. Alan Fairclough, a driver with Fab Four Taxi Tours in Liverpool. When we do tours, I and my colleagues quite often show people pictures of the two buildings and the similarities are remarkable and so there are obvious comparisons and the New Yorkers are basically like the Scousers they're very direct people you know so there's very close links. I've been to New York a few times there is the same vibe in the people of New York you've got a lot of Irish influence there the same as we have in Liverpool. Liverpool tour guide Jackie Spencer. 
obviously it's much bigger but Central Park in New York is really like Sefton Park in Liverpool when I go to New York I feel at home I really do so I can see how that was with John as well Well, here we are again. Just two average people strolling through the park. When I was in high school, I used to sometimes wait outside the Dakota on days off from school, on school holidays. I'd go and I'd stand outside the building and wait to see him. I never saw him. Unfortunately, uh, for lack of not for lack of trying, um, he would have always just left or just gone back in. So I never actually did see him. There were fans always waiting outside the Dakota, not just on December 8th, but every morning there were fans waiting outside the Dakota. But they were respectful. They were nice. They would say hello. And sometimes they'd ask for an autograph and sometimes not. Sometimes they just wanted to talk to him. John took time to talk to those fans and sign autographs before he and Yoko left for a studio session at the record plant on December the 8th, 1980. They'd had a busy day of interviews, photo shoots and promotion for Double Fantasy. After several hours at the studio, they returned home to say goodnight to their five-year-old son. Tragically, John Lennon never made it inside the building. His life was ended in the archway of the Dakota by four bullets from a handgun. Ken Womack was a 14-year-old Beatles fan at the time. I'd bought Double Fantasy the day it came out in November. It was proudly uh, enshrined on one of my dressers. Uh, and it was there that night, you know, perched uh, on display. Um, it was announced, of course, by Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football. I'd gone to bed early. Uh, for, you know, a 14-year-old. I could hear my father. He must have heard it on Monday Night Football. I could hear him shuffling down the, the long hallway to my room on the carpet. And he eased open my door and I pretended to be asleep. And he walked away. And um, the next morning when I woke up, you know, when I went down to breakfast there laid out over my, my plate was the morning paper. You know, you scan the article and you try to say, oh my God, what was it? What happened? A character who's not even in the story shows up that day and wrenches him out of the world. It, it is uh, absolutely senseless. It was ridiculous. It, uh, you know, you always look for the reason why, and there is no reason there. And it still feels the same as it does, as it did 40 years ago. My husband and I had been separated for nine months, Rand my husband was an officer in the United States Navy, he went to the Naval Academy, and he was at sea. And after being separated for nine months, he was coming home the next day on December 9th. The telephone rang, and it was a good friend of mine. It was the son of the commanding officer on my husband's ship. And he said, I have something to tell you, but I, before I do, I need you to sit down. And I said, don't tell me that the ship has been delayed again. He said, it's much worse than that. John Lennon's been shot and killed. And after that, I don't really remember very much that night. I, it was almost like I went into shock. I do 
remember finding myself the next morning standing dockside waiting for the ship to come in. But between that announcement and that moment where I was standing there, I don't really remember very much. But when I saw my husband, when he walked down the gangplank towards me, he was crying and I was crying. And after not seeing each other for nine months, it wasn't a very happy homecoming. I remember that we went home and we put on Beatles music and just sat there stunned. On December 8th, 1980, I was 19 years old. And I was a college student at um, Hofstra University, which is on Long Island. And my roommate and I were in our room and her boyfriend was visiting. We were watching TV. So at the end of the program, normally the local sports anchor would come on and give an update of the scores of whatever sports were going on. And instead of the scores, the local sports anchor came on and said that John Lennon had been shot outside the Dakota. And I sat bolt upright in bed and screamed. A friend of mine in another dorm called me and she said she, if I wanted to stay up all night, she was going to stay up and did I want to come sit with her? So I went to her dormitory and you rem- I remember every floor the elevator door would open and and it was chaos just people were hysterical and crying and screaming and I walked across the quad and I went to my friend's room and we sat in her room all night listening to WNEWFM local radio station there was a DJ there called Vin Skelsa and he was playing Beatles songs and John Lennon songs and crying and I don't remember ever feeling that kind of desolation before. New Yorkers loved John and New Yorkers wanted him here and and we were proud to have him. And the fact remains that the the guy who killed him wasn't a New Yorker, you know? And that's one thing that I want to stress. I do it on my tours too. I tell people it was not a New Yorker who killed him. That that is something that people need to understand that, that New Yorkers loved him and wanted him here. And it was a crazy guy from Hawaii who did it, so. More than 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, on the morning of December the 9th, the people of Liverpool woke up to the news. Well, we we were all absolutely gutted, you know, when John died. Uh, Woke up the following day because, of course, it happened uh, of of a night time for us. You know, there was was the candlelight vigils at St George's Hall in Lime Street. We had people... Uh, came over from uh, New York, uh, obviously with with John's connection. People come around from all around the world, and everyone was was totally gutted and totally shell shocked. Really, it was it was like I suppose the 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 biggest one of the biggest sad things that had occurred in Liverpool. I mean, you got you had the May Blitz in in Liverpool, uh, where you know you had seven consecutive days of, of bombing in the in the Second World War in May 1940. And I, I would say it had a similar impact for an awful lot of people, such was the extent. Well, I, I worked in the city centre at the time. So I remember my dad waking me up the, the morning of the 9th of December, because of course it was next day here, telling me the news. I had a poster of John on my bedroom wall. Absolutely devastating. So it, it's, um you know, I had to go into work that day. And it was like a cloud had descended over Liverpool. We couldn't believe it. It was though we'd lost a family member, to be honest, because John was so much a part of all of our lives. It was devastating. I remember 
remember hearing the news and knowing that something big had happened. Like as a young boy, I think that was my first kind of celebrity death, if, if you want to call it that. But I knew someone famous and someone important had died. And the adults were all talking about it. And one thing I remember, I was watching BBC Two TV that evening. I think it was around eight o'clock. And I remember normal programming had been interrupted to talk about John Lennon, to, you know, to give a tribute to John Lennon. And But I'd never seen that happen before on TV, that I thought TV schedules were written in stone and that the gods of TV wouldn't allow a disruption like that. But the fact that BBC Two changed programming to talk about John Lennon, I knew then that this was a significant event. Beatles fans born after 1980, or who were just too young to remember, relate to John's murder in a different way. Um, It was actually one of the first traumatic experiences I ever had with the idea of death, because I became a Beatles fan very young. And, you know, I would ask my parents questions like, you know, will they ever get back together? Can we see them in concert? Is Paul around? What's John doing? And, you know, of course, they told me what had happened. And by about 1985, which is I think about the time that I started becoming a Beatles fan, there was a TV movie called John and Yoko, A Love Story that came out that was all about this. So I did learn about it at about the same time I became a Beatles fan, but it was it was really upsetting. I remember I had a lot of Beatles books and any book that addressed that subject, I would just skip over all of the pages um, until it stopped talking about it. I remember reading something about it, um, reading some details about it, reading maybe, you know, what he had said when he got shot, and it was just like it stuck with me forever. So it was probably a long time. I was probably a Beatles fan for another five or six years before I really was able to read about the story. So yeah, I mean, it was even for somebody who was not aware of the Beatles or John when he died, it was still a pretty traumatic thing. You know, it's funny, I don't ever remember quote unquote learning that John was dead or murdered. Um, and I don't I feel like sometimes for people born after December eighth, nineteen eighty, that thing kind of like Beatles music, it's sort of like learned by osmosis. You're sort of born knowing it. Um, I the thing I do remember very vividly is the twentieth anniversary of his death in two thousand. Um you know, I remember sitting at my kitchen table and I lit candles and my mom thought I was crazy. Older fans hearing their stories from their perspective um, as first gen fans is kind of cool to give context to that. But um, yeah, I mean, for myself, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, honored by their country, decorated by their queen. And loved here in America, here are the Beatles! What I've heard from older people is that 1980 changed everything, the the killing of John Lennon in terms of how people looked at the Beatles. I know, for instance, movements like punk rock, a lot of punk rock would have looked down on the Beatles um, or considered the Beatles to be out of fashion and yesterday's music. And the killing of John Lennon in 1980 it meant that the Beatles could no longer get back together. So that was significant. Uh, like the chapter was gone forever. And 
I presume then people appreciated what the Beatles were. A new appreciation must have developed. So the Beatles, after 1980, became a very different creature. People often say that the biggest, the best career mover an artist can do is to die because there's always a resurgence in the music. Obviously, you look at parallels, you look at the likes of Elvis when Elvis passed away. Uh, there was a resurgence in the music and people discovered the music. When I look back at the period, maybe shortly before his murder to the present, the one area where they seem to diminish if only briefly, is around 1979, 1980, uh, and maybe as late as 1986, 87, somewhere in there. They never disappear, of course, but there is a slight sort of cloudiness to their reign. And it comes back full force with the anthology in the early 90s. Um, and it's, if it's done anything since then, of course, it's grown. I've I've taken people on the on the tours. I've took a young lad from down south, who was age about six, and his knowledge about the Beatles was incredible. He put a lot of people to shame, you know. And as I say, you you will always have uh, good music. You can't put a date on it, really. Today, the Beatles are celebrated in Liverpool almost everywhere you look. If you fly into the city, you land at John Lennon Airport, renamed in two thousand and one. There are statues, museums, tours, festivals, gift shops, even a hotel dedicated to the band. But it wasn't always that way. The Beatles really and honestly mean nothing to the people of Liverpool anymore. Uh, hence, uh, I'm the chairman of the Beatles fundraising committee to, to build a statue. And our total money in from all over the world is about £230. In Liverpool, they just don't want to know the Beatles. That was Alan Williams, the Beatles' first manager, speaking in 1979. Punk and New Wave had moved in and the Beatles were considered old news. A year later, John Lennon was gone and Liverpool began the process of reassessing its connection with its most famous cultural export. It was Merseyside County Council or something back then. They started um, educating a group of guides to be Beatle guides in 1980. And there was a double-decker bus. Eventually, there was a Beatles museum. Um, they started to do conventions. So, you know, it was a, a, a slow burn. There were a few different things that started resurgences later. But yeah, the death of John Lennon was the big one, I suppose. The first year that I was there, I was going on, a, on the Magical Mystery Tour just to find out where everything was. The tour guide said, what are you doing here from America? And I said, well, I'm doing research on a book about John Lennon. And she went, oh, no, not another one. Really, there was not a lot of enthusiasm for the Beatles, even in 1993. And as I returned over the next seven years, I watched things change. I mean, Matthew Street began to have more and more Beatles things. The John Lennon bar opened the Cavern shopping mall, you begin to see a resurgence and you begin to see the Beatles as an industry in Liverpool. And at first, people would roll their eyes and, and sort of sigh and shake their heads when I talked about doing research on the Beatles. But by 2000, they were embracing this part of their economy that was going to keep Liverpool in the forefront. I came along in 1995. And that was the year the Beatles released the anthology series. And so they thought there might be a big bit of a resurgence, which there was. And it was a nice 
you know, it was a nice kind of hobby job for me. I worked on the Magical Mysteries tour. I started the first private taxi tours of Liverpool. Most of the visitors I work with are international, mostly from America or Canada or Australia. I don't really work with many British people. And in this case, we get grandparents who bring their grandchildren. And so it's something, it, the, the Beatles are something that can bring generations together. This is why we always say to people, you should come on tours. You know, sometimes when I'm doing regular cab work, I actually get people in the cab and they say to me, I don't need to uh, do a tour uh, because I'm a, Liverpool, I'm a Liverpool person. You know, I'm a scouser, as we get called. And I often say to them, well, that's the very reason why you do need to do it, because you need to find out about your own city. But people take their things for granted. Basically, if you're in Liverpool, the Beatles... You know, if you're any sort of music fan, it's in your DNA. New York also retains its connection with John. People still know he lived there. People make the Dakota a pilgrimage place. They show up. The reaction when he died, of course, was people immediately, immediately started converging on the Dakota. Uh, There are photographs and news reports from that night that show people just crowding all night outside the building. So. It immediately became a place of tribute. This is something New Yorkers do anyway. You know, when somebody dies, um, you know, makeshift memorials will pop up. But this was more than makeshift and more than casual. And of course, across the street is Strawberry Fields, which was dedicated in John's memory in 1985 by the city of New York. Um, They wanted to do something in his memory, and they created this beautiful tribute to him with this uh, Italian mosaic right across the street from Dakota, and people go there constantly, paying tribute to John, full of people learning about why it's there and who it's a tribute to if they're young. People picnicking, people playing music, people sitting. So is there still a strong connection? Absolutely. I believe so. And I believe there always will be. Nobody loves you Bend it down now. I've never claimed divinity. I've never claimed purity of soul. I've never claimed to have the answer to the light. I only put out songs and answer questions as honestly as I can, but only as honestly as I can. No more, no less. I can't do any more. I can't do any less. But I cannot live up to other people's expectations of me because they're illusionary. That was John in one of his final interviews. He may not have claimed divinity, but after 1980, other people would attempt to claim it for him. So after his death, he's depicted in this white suit, almost with a dove on his shoulder. He's sort of like a modern day good pirate with this dove hovering around him. And he's this wonderful peacenik who did so much for bringing peace to the world. I don't think John would want to be remembered that way. When you go see the film yesterday, when you have the alternate universe, John Lennon, who is very sweet and gentle and kind, I was really infuriated because this was nothing like the real John Lennon. This was, I know it was an alternate universe, I get that, but it was so far removed from the real John that it was irritating. People have placed John on this pedestal. One of my friends describe it as, 
the pedestal on the statue at the top of Mount Beetle. People who weren't around at the same time as John, people who didn't share the planet with him, as it were, have this idea that comes from books and comes from media and comes from stuff that's post his death. So they think and they hear things like give peace a chance and imagine. And they think that that that's all there is to him. And there's this, I call it Martin Luther Lennon syndrome, you know, um, this idea that he is this sainted martyr of peace and love. You know, I feel in a way like first generation fans had a more accurate picture of him. Uh, they got to know John as his life went along. They didn't have just like this incredible timeline of John's 40 years on earth to pick out different aspects of it to exploit or, you know, to banish. I was just old enough to realize what was happening. And it was becoming clear that this kind of hagiography, this deification of him absolutely did not match whom, who he wanted to be and who he wanted us to understand he was. You know, he, uh, in the last weekend of his life, he is being honest about his misogynistic behavior and how he's always trying to get better. And he said something like, I'm going to have to live a lot longer uh, to be able to atone for what I did when I was in my youth. You know, so this is a, maybe he deserves deification for for that brute level of honesty, uh, perhaps, because a lot of people are, are very dishonest with their own personal myths. He didn't have one uh, in that way. What he did do was when Yoko threw him out in the early 70s, you know, she threw him out because they had some kind of an argument. And then he, in front of a whole room full of people, took another woman by the hand, went into the back bedroom, proceeded to totally humiliate his wife by, you know, having a thing with this other woman so loudly that everyone in the room could hear it. That's pretty humiliating and pretty horrible. He didn't, you know, have any illusions about how horrible he could be, he knew. I was feeling insecure You might not love me anymore You know, he wasn't always a great person. He admitted it, uh, especially later in life. He really tried to reconcile his behavior in his 20s um, and sort of trying to work through his trauma. He was a badly damaged person. John could be cruel, he tells you in his solo career. He's a jealous guy. He's insecure. He never felt loved. He never felt cared for. He always felt as if people were going to abandon him and push him aside the way he was pushed aside when he was about four and a half years old and his mother made the decision to leave him with his Aunt Mimi Tarir and his Uncle George. So he, he could be, when he felt insecure and unloved, me.
and regrets his violence. John and Yoko were renowned for their involvement in the anti-war movement, and their song Give Peace a Chance quickly became an anthem on its release in 1969. But although John used his platform as a world-famous musician to draw attention to the political and social causes he cared about, he was wary of being hero-worshipped. Because my role in society, or any artist or poet's role, is to try and express what we all feel, not to tell people how to feel, not as a preacher, not as a leader, but as a reflection of us all. And it's like, that's the job of the artist in society, not to... It's, they're not some alienated being living on the outskirts of town. It's fine to live on the outskirts of town, but artists must reflect what we all are. That's what it's about, artists. I usually tell people, go out and read Lennon Remembers, that famous interview that he did with Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone in the, in the early 70s. And it's a, that's a very angry interview because he was in a bad place and it was right after the breakup and he was, you know, his head was somewhere else. Read that. And then go listen to Give Peace a Chance, Imagine, Double Fantasy, whatever. The real man, I believe, and I never met him, the real man lies somewhere in between that anger and that peace, you know. And he was not totally about peace and love, and he was not not about it. But you have to find the happy medium. And I think that placing the halo on him, as it were, is... Not fair. It's not fair to his memory. It's not fair to his legacy. It does him a disservice because it's only one dimensional and it makes him a cipher of a man. Close your eyes. Have no fear. The monster's gone. He's on the run and your daddy's here. With Julian, my first child, I was just taught the world. I would come home and there'd be a 12-year-old boy there who I had no relationship whatsoever. Now he's 17. I'm getting a relationship now because I can talk and about music and whatever he's into and girlfriends and that kind of stuff, you know. It was a strange child in the house. I'd come back from Australia and he'd be a different size. I wouldn't even recognise the way he looked half the time. Yeah. I didn't want that to, to be like that with Sean. And the timing was just right for me to do all that as well. The thing is, okay, Julian was 17, and he never had an adult relationship with his father. Um, they were starting to reconcile and starting to be closer. Who knows what would have happened? And as far as Sean goes, he has no memory of his father except those of a little boy. None of, neither of them got to have an adult relationship with him. The fact remains that he died at 40. And we do not know what he would be like as an older person. We don't know what he would be like or how he would have come to terms with his past. He was starting to come to terms with it and undoubtedly would have continued wrestling with it and continued coming to terms with it and reached some conclusions about his unsavory younger self that could have and should have redeemed him. But we will never know that because he did not have the luxury of time. So where does all of this leave Paul McCartney? What time did you hear the news? This morning sometime. 
Very early. Yeah. It's gone now, yeah? Drag, isn't it? Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Paul on December the 9th, 1980, when asked by a reporter for his reaction to the news from New York. His choice of words would haunt him for quite some time. To lose somebody so violently and so suddenly, and then just sort of get smacked in the face with a question like, Paul, like, how do you feel? It's jarring uh, because he was in shock. You know, I'm sure the Beatles fans looked to him for something because they were suffering um, and they didn't get it from Paul. And so they were upset, obviously. But it's unfair, I think, to expect Paul to react any differently. You know, he's not a, a PR person or a politician. He's just Paul and he lost his friend and he was in shock. When you know guys from Liverpool, we, you know, they, they tend to not wear their heart on their sleeve. And obviously Paul was absolutely devastated, but he didn't want someone to shove in a microphone in front of him the day that one of his best friends has died. And so he's he's just, he didn't handle death well, Paul. He didn't go to his own father's funeral and things. So he just basically wanted to get the guy out of the way. So although um, it came across as, as being a little bit heartless, I think people who knew that type of Liverpool person just got it. He was like get, saying, get out my face, <laughs> <Did> you know? <laughs> you can't have a persona for John without having, in some ways, an equal and opposite persona for Paul, whether or not any of these personas are actually based in fact or not. So I think that there was a switch when John died. A lot of the complexity, the, even the negative stuff about John went away. And in balance, a lot of that negativity, I think, transferred to Paul. And Paul became the sellout. Paul became the guy who said it's a drag when he found out about John. He became heartless. He became less creative. He became um, less intelligent. He became less emotional. He, everything about the, the persona of John became more positive. And I think everything about the persona of Paul became more negative. The John versus Paul debate, as far as I'm concerned, is ridiculous. Uh, they're, they're equally talented, equally brilliant, equally wonderful. It's kind of like, why do you have to make those choices? And why do you have to revile one of them in order to like the other one? And I, I, I've never seen the, the sense in that, never seen the point of that. You know, if Paul has any problem with his post-Beatles legacy, it's just that he's lived a long time. And so he's put out more material uh, and he's given us more opportunities to admire or not admire that material, as it were. I mean, part of his challenge is is this great bulk, big body of work. But I think he was grappling with what he called Saint Lennon, that kind of sainted person. And it, it hasn't been particularly fair to either Paul or John. James Joyce, the story, The Dead, there's a character, Gabriel Conroy, who realizes at the end of the short story that his wife, uh, Greta, is in love with a boy who died for her as a teenager, a young man called Michael Fury. And Gabriel realizes that he's competing with a ghost and you can't win against a ghost. And Paul's in the same situation. Like he can't win against the ghost of John Lennon. So it shouldn't even really be a competition, I suppose. It should be Paul just being Paul, John being John. George Martin said, if you compare and contrast John and Paul, you're dealing in two different arenas. 
Paul is good at one thing, John's good at another. But if I had a thin slice of paper, I could hardly slide it between them because they are both geniuses. And I think that's how we need to look, that they both are great people in their own right. Ringo and George, I don't know if there was as much of an impact because the partnership between John and Paul is just so important. Um, that dynamic is so much more important in discussing the Beatles than in discussing the relationship, for example, between John and, and Ringo or John and George. I mean, I think they both clearly missed him. They both made, you know, wonderful songs in his memory and um, obviously have always remembered him to this day. But I don't think it tarnished their reputation in the same way as it did for Paul. In the early 70s, relations between Lennon and McCartney were strained and there were some very public put-downs some of which even found their way into the music. But by the end of his life, John appeared to have made his peace with Paul and with his legacy as a Beatle. They had come to a very comfortable place in their relationship, even over the last few months. Um, and John was feeling very warmly toward him. In fact, there's a, a beautiful piece of video. You can see it on YouTube uh, in an interview he did in October with the LA Times where he calls Paul my dear one. Uh, and even, of course, in the last hours of his life, he's talking about McCartney and how he would do anything for Paul. And he knows Paul would do anything for him. And he says it with great conviction. I, I think their friendship would have reached its full recovery uh, in, in very powerful ways. Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. Paul and John had planned to meet in New Orleans. They really didn't get to see New Orleans in 1964 when the Beatles played there. And so during the 70s, they planned to meet in New Orleans, but right before the reunion, Yoko told him that she had consulted her astrologers and the time was not right, that it was dangerous for him to travel. And so the meeting was postponed indefinitely. And I think that John wanted to get together with Paul again, perhaps even renew that plan to go to New Orleans and spend some time together They'd met up a few times in the 70s when they were in the Dakota watching a Saturday Night Live. They were offering $3,000 for the Beatles to, to get back together. And Paul and John watched that on telly in the Dakota, apparently, and considered getting a taxi and going down to the TV studio and claiming the money. And it's such a pity that didn't happen. The only thing that matters is how he and I feel about those yeah, things yeah. and not what about, you know, the, the writer or the commentator thinks about it. You know, him and me are OK, so I don't care what they say about that. My friends are my friends, whatever way. I think that John and Paul, even though maybe they outgrew one another um, or, you know, they found new partners to have that relationship with, they always loved each other very, very much. And, you know, if you think about just even at the end of John's life, his inspiration to get back into recording was prompted by hearing Paul's uh, song coming up. He was so impressed by that song. He's like, man, I've got to get out there and make something new. He really was mesmerized. He liked the fact that Paul had kind of pushed his boundaries after so many years of kind of staying in his lane. 
he liked, you know, the sped up vocals, the electronica. He kind of liked the little ska background that existed. Some of us, me included, sometimes say it got the competitive juices flowing. But if things hadn't ended as tragically as they did, could there have been any kind of reunion? The Beatles probably would have got back together for Live Aid in 1985, and it probably would have been an anticlimax. I'm not a big fan of bands getting back together. Um, I think they generally have done their best work by the time they split up. The money was getting really big, and I imagine at some point it would have been too big for them to ignore if they could get a billion dollars for charity, right? How do you not do that? There was a lot of pressure in that way uh, on them. Performing as a Beatle is a harder problem than performing as John Lennon and Yoko or the Plastic Ono Band, because you don't have that big aura around you. Whatever happens, we're going to get knocked. It's not out of the question. It's just a, a big responsibility you know there's such a mystique about the Beatles that they'll be expecting God to perform. John could turn on a dime he could be excited about a project and ready to delve into a project and then completely cast it aside the slightest thing could change his opinion so we don't know what he would have done hopefully he and Paul would have worked together and reunited but one never knows. Whatever happens to the Beatles, we'll always be sort of friends, you know. So all I want for the Beatles is their individual happiness. And whether that's in a collective form or not remains to be seen. In many ways, the world John Lennon left is very different to the one we live in today. But some things haven't changed all that much. President-elect Reagan was in New York City today. He said John Lennon's murder was a great tragedy, that an answer to crime in the streets must be found, but said he did not believe that Lennon's death amounted to an argument in favour of the control of handguns. In 2015, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published data confirming that well over a million people in the United States had been killed by firearms since December the 8th, 1980. So what would John Lennon make of America and the world if he were here today? And have we learned anything from the way he died? I think we've learned scant little. A lot of folks around the world still haven't learned the brutal lessons of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. You know, the dream of the 60s and the 70s, and certainly the Beatles' dream of a lasting peace hasn't come true, at least in terms of the world. Uh, there are greater divisions between rich and poor. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, he would have to come to grips with that. Um, but of course, like us, he would have lived through it and all the transitions that got us here to today. It's staggering to me that we've had so many mass shootings, so many killings anyway, um, and there's nothing being done. There's nothing being done. You know, you think about John and... And just to be very blunt, it's like, okay, if this rich, white, beloved rock star um, couldn't inspire change or uh, gun control laws or any sort of political movement on that front, like, who's to say that, a, you know, a poor black boy or girl could? And it's sickening. It's absolutely sickening. Um, and, you know, to, to think about John, I feel like he would have been an advocate sort of in that way. 
um, because I think he would have supported Black Lives Matter. I think he would have lent his voice to accountability for, uh, you know, policemen who commit these atrocious acts. He was an immigrant and he struggled with the government for a long time with his green card. And I think in light of what's going on with immigration here in the U.S. right now, he would be irate. And I think maybe more than any other issue, that would be the one he would stand up for. At his core, you know, John Lennon was many things, but he cared about peace and he cared about justice and he cared about human rights. And right now, I think he, he would have just been disgusted by the election of Donald Trump. He would have probably been a, um, working very hard for human rights, you know, to raise money for human rights atrocities. However, he would have wanted to do it then. I think he and Yoko would have continued to be partners and activists and, and supporting the causes that matter to him as they evolved through the years. When John left, they were struggling for women's rights. Yoko was the one that woke him up to the rights of women and the equality of women and the fact that they were partners and not people to wait on you. And he began to see women in a different light and to fight for their rights. I think he would be so thrilled today to see the female executives and the ceiling, the, that glass ceiling that has been crashed, and to see that a woman ran for president in the last election. So I've seen tremendous positive changes in the years that have passed. And I think if John were here, if it were a good day, he would say, look at all the changes that you've made. Look at all the ways that the world has grown from the time that I left. Now, would he tell us good enough? No. He was always challenging us to do more, to be more, to achieve more. I think he would say we still have work to do, but I think he'd be very proud of what has happened since December of 1980. I suspect that celebrities have learned a lot about their personal security. You know, John Lennon was walking around the streets of New York and that was one of the reasons he loved New York was he felt that he could walk around those streets unprotected with no security. And unfortunately, that's what cost him his life in the end because he had no security. So I guess the killing of John Lennon made celebrities aware that it's a crazy world out there and you, you can't take chances. I go back to uh, a philosophy that you know he, he and Yoko would talk about and it it had a nice linkage with the idea of the double fantasy, you know, the idea that you're sharing something as opposed to a single fantasy that's just in your head. A double fantasy is a world where you're sharing whatever that world is with somebody else. I, I think that vision is always true, that the only way that we can elevate ourselves above the malaise, uh, whether it has to do with you know, handgun murder or civil rights and race issues, is to... Um, also find ways to transport ourselves to aesthetically powerful places to live, right? Like listening to Beatles music or whatever it is that excites you. Sky. 
So after 40 years, just what is it about John Lennon that still resonates with so many people? I mean, it's pure talent for one thing. You know, you can't deny how, how, how wonderful he was as a singer and a songwriter and musician. His the writer, his ideas were just so interesting and so un, he's so unusual. It will never be anybody close to John Lennon. He, he's just one of a kind and he's fascinating to think about. He was like a knife that would cut through bullshit. Now, sometimes it was to suit his own purposes, obviously, but he would genuinely try to give an honest answer or it would certainly be an interesting answer. He was a very intelligent man, a very funny man. He had a lot of great qualities that people just missed. When they were gone, they realized that was a man that made a difference. And for me, obviously, he's one of the most important people in the 20th century, one of the most important people of history. I guess for me, it is that John is so real. It, you can like him, you can dislike him, you can side with him or not. You can agree with what he has to say or not. He doesn't care. And it's something we all would like to do. We would all like to be who we are, not worry about presenting an image to the public. And despite the fact that he could be extremely insecure, he had enough confidence to be John. He said, it's going to be the records. That's where you're going to go back to. And he's just been spot on because the music has been the single most important commodity of, of their legacy, and that's the legacy that will last all time. Those recordings are just magisterial, and um, when people discover them, it's magic. And, and it's it has this special power. When you hear it, you know it's different than everything else.